0: Hello
1: out there. Yes, hello again, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, we start the show off tonight. It, we're doing this on Friday. The archive came out this morning, and today also marks the 10th anniversary of Clarence's death. Uh, left a hole in the East Street Band that, quite frankly, could never be filled, uh, with all respect to Jake, who I think would agree with that. And we just want to acknowledge the loss for his family, Bruce and the band, and also the fans. Just a remarkable guy.
0: Yeah, he, uh, he brought a lot to the stage. He brought a lot to Bruce's music. And he was. I remember Bruce talked about the East Street Band being a bridge to his audience at one point, I guess, in 95. And I always thought that Clarence was a huge part of that bridge in, in and of himself. Oh, he was
1: such a symbol of the band and of the bond between the band and the fans. When Bruce says he he's the biggest man you've ever seen, uh, it was that was true. I mean, you and I both had a we certainly weren't friends with Clarence, but we both spent a little time around him. And he he was larger than life. There's just uh, there's no other way to put it.
0: Uh, Yes, he was. He everything was big about him as as uh, as bruce as bruce said and his smile was just so huge and i was lucky enough uh when i was doing some stuff with e street radio uh, about and i guess it was in 2010 that um clarence came into the studio and, and the e street radio guy at the time tom said come on you come on down and meet him and so my wife my wife and i went down and we got this amazing picture of him the two of us with him and his smile is just so big and it's it's a treasured memory for me.
1: Uh, a very generous man. Weren't you guys also at one of his birthday parties?
0: I wasn't. <laughs>
1: oh, Claudeen right. Claudine was. was. Okay, we'll move on from that. <laughs> Forgot that That's you right. weren't there for that. It's okay.
0: She she went to the, um. what is it? Was that the one at? Oh, the God. 50th.
1: No, it, it must have been his 60th birthday. It was, I, it was at Foxwoods.
0: Yes, uh, it was at Foxwoods.
1: Some crazy stories from that night. We're not going to go <laughs> to on the podcast.
0: But yeah, they had a great time, and uh, yeah, that was a hell of a show, from what I understand anyway.
1: (laughs) Well, again, Clarence is just so missed, and you think of those nights we stood there in the audience, and he was to Bruce's right, and and the sound that came out of his sax, and and the joy he brought so many of us, you and I certainly both included,
0: we miss him. Yes, we do. Uh, I mean, Bruce did the best he could, He, he did the only thing he could on the Wrecking Ball Tour, which is... You can't replace him with one man. You, no. you got the whole horn section going, and obviously Jake took the took the solos, but it took a it took five guys to to fill Clarence's shoes on on the next tour. Yeah,
1: and he certainly is highlighted on today's archive release, which was as you predicted it in our archives <laughs> episode, July 1, 1978 from Berkeley. Uh, two of the tracks were used for the King Biscuit Flower Hour many years ago. Uh, what is your take on today's release?
0: Oh, it's fantastic. The sound is just so amazingly clear. And, and talk about Clarence's sound is really clear. And it's just right there perfectly in the left channel. I feel like I'm looking at the stage and, and, and Clarence is right there blowing the sax. And obviously the Darkness Tour was so full of Clarence's signature solos. You know, you got Badlands, you got Promised Land, Jungle Land. And he, he's all over this one. It, it was very fitting. I don't know if... How intentional it was to release this one on this date, but he is—it's uh, very appropriate.
1: It worked out well, and night. Don't forget night, which wasn't played oh, that yeah. much on the Darkness tour. Very muscular version.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was something I think. uh Forget which one, Eric or Chris, in their respective essays pointed out that night was only done in the early part of the tour, and and we're glad glad it's 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 represented here because it does sound pretty damn good.
1: I've listened to a good chunk of the show. Now, one of the things that caught my ear, uh, Chris wrote about on Backstreet's, the altered lines and the promise after he dedicated the song to his pop. And this is one of these fascinating things. And it's it speaks to really why our show exists and the lines uh, about how he learned real good to tighten up inside. And I don't say nothing unless I'm asked. And when you think about it coming from the perspective of 2021, of course, we know he's overcome that. Now, he has spoken... very eloquently about this uh, years of therapy. (laughs) And he obviously tells these stories also in the Broadway show, as well as other platforms like his book. And it's really remarkable to hear those lines sung in 1978 and knowing what he's been through to arrive at Bruce at 70, 71 going on 72. it, It just pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. Those, those lyrics really hit home, not just for Bruce, but I'm sure for a lot of people. And I, to me, that's not, those are the, when he does those that, that verse, that's, that's a better b- performance right there. And I think, you, as you just pointed out, it's very rare for that, for that verse to be performed, especially in 78. In and I don't think it's been done in, in the reunion era at all. Um, no. I think the, there is a version on the, on the Darkness box on that Thrill Hill vault disc. Mm-hmm. There's a video of the band playing the song in the studio. And he does it then, and that's that's probably my favorite version of the song, because it's the band and it's got it's got everything in in, in the lyrics that the, the verse that verse about his father and then about the uh, you know sleeping in a car and whatever that whatever that line <laughs> line is at the end of the song,
1: right. Well, like I want to having spend, trouble
0: remembering.
1: Oh, oh, it's fine. I don't think anyone's going to hold it against you that you didn't <laughs> remember that.
0: Well, just my like my Rain Man reputation gets just gets just erodes year after year.
1: <laughs> I'm going to spend a little bit more time with it. Maybe we'll come back to it in the next episode. I only, okay. and this is a show that was never bootlegged, really. So it's really all of our first experience with it. Uh, very impressed with what I've heard so far.
0: Yes, uh, there was a soundboard of the first set, and then most of the encores. But as you but as you point out, yeah, the, we did we didn't know what exactly was in the second set. So uh, you've heard the first set before; it's the second set you've uh, you've never heard.
1: All right. Well, I'll pay special attention to that then.
0: <laughs> I'm going to let me let me make one comment on the sound, though. This is kind of frustrating. Mm-hmm. I you know, as I said, I think it sounds absolutely fantastic, and I'm really enjoying it. I mean, you know, the, the one listen I've been able to give it. But the in-between song banter from Bruce from is just so low. I can barely hear it. I'm All trying right. to, because there's some cool stuff there. It's talking about the Matrix, uh, talking about the joke about, you know, I'm from New Jersey. What's that? It was just so, so low to hear. And it's kind of frustrating, but, you know, it just doesn't take, doesn't take anything away from the music. So it's, I'll, I'll let it slide. Oh, I, I
1: didn't really notice that. But as I said, I haven't had much of a chance to listen to it yet. I'm still working through it. But <laughs> again, maybe we'll come back to it. Now, there is something else new to discuss. Uh, this was a bit of a surprise. Bruce with the Killers on a song, Dustland. I guess they originally put it out, it was called the Dustland Fairy Tale. And now it is called just Dustland in the version with Bruce. Now, I, I got to be totally honest. I'm not the biggest Killers fan. When you told me it was an older song that was being re-recorded, I went back and listened to the original version. I didn't think much of it. And I, I can't say that I feel a burning passion for what has been done in the version with Bruce either. Did you have a different feeling than I did?
0: Uh, well, I guess it sounds like I like the Killers more than you do. I think and, that's safe. yes. Uh, but yeah, this one didn't didn't grab me the same way, say Chinatown did last late last summer, when, which he did with the bleachers. I mean, it was cool. It was good to see him in the video, even though it was obvious they were never in the same room together. Um, but yeah, I have I'm, I should give it another couple of listens just to be fair to it. But it didn't wasn't something that grabbed me from the get go.
1: I listened to it three times and I was like, whatever. But it's just good that he's keeping busy.
0: Oh, uh, that's that's for sure.
1: Of course, one other thing we should discuss is the return to Broadway. Springsteen on Broadway will be coming back for 30 shows starting June 26th, it is, right? Yes. Pretty exciting, unexpected in a way, but makes total sense, especially since he's helping them reopen Broadway.
0: Well, it's, uh, I'm not sure I recall how excited I am about it, but it's it's good to see him playing. Uh, I mean, based on his conversation with E Street Radio, he really hadn't uh, reviewed the show since it ended. And so I wasn't exactly holding out hope that he's going to vastly over, over overhaul the whole show. But um, it sounds like uh, he's going he's gonna to look look at it to see what needs to be reviewed.
1: I, I don't think there's going to be much in the way of changes. It's a Broadway show. It was a fixed show pretty much the entire first run. Maybe now he's got some material that could conceivably fit in. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of "I'll See You in My Dreams," which, of course, after what we've been through for the last year plus, but I, I would think that any tweaks he makes are going to be relatively minor.
0: Yeah, he talked about making it shorter, but really, the only stuff he added was dialogue or yeah, you know, he or was talking about this.
1: He was talking about the script. I thought when he said that.
0: Okay, because the the song stayed the same at least a number of songs stayed the same pretty much I mean, the entire run. Oh, it's yeah. Just,
1: All the show was entirely the same on the nights that Patty was there, except for he made that change to Jode from Long Walk Home. So that was, that was after the show opened. In the previews, which, of course, people do on Broadway, he tweaked the show a couple of times trying to find the show that he wanted. But once the show opened, it was a show.
0: Right, and... I don't see. I I agree with you. I don't see anything changing except maybe adding in "I'll See You My Dreams." Uh, That would certainly work. He was at the end of the show. He talked about visiting with his with his dad and uh, his aunts and Clarence and and Danny. So it would make sense to 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 use that as a as an intro to "I'll See You My Dreams" because that's exactly what it is.
1: The "Born to Run" ending though was pretty perfect. But let's let's see what happens. We got a couple of weeks and. And I guess we'll see what the show is then. Now, in that E Street interview, he did another notable piece of news. (laughs) He referenced a release that would be coming out in the fall, not new music from The Vault that fans would enjoy. Now, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) they didn't really follow up after he said that. You would have thought the next question would have been perhaps, Bruce, can you tell us a little bit more about that? But uh, that did not happen. So we will (laughs) wait to learn more. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right i and i got the impression he had more than one project in mind when he was when he was talking so uh i got the feeling that maybe it'll be one this fall and then one sometime early next year maybe to coincide with the tour or something Is, did you did you get that impression at all
1: he definitely mentioned at one point in the conversation a release in the fall and then a release next year then he sort of went back and then he oddly asked Has this been announced already? (laughs) Like he didn't know if it had been announced, which one would think that they run these things by him. We know they do. So I don't know what was going on specifically there. But the bottom line is we got a little tease, but no further information.
0: Uh, Well, it's I guess it kind of that leaves that whole Western set album that he talked about a few weeks ago kind of remaining unresolved somewhere, at least for the time being.
1: Yeah, what he was talking about for the fall did not seem to be that, but that's just my read. And again, it was it, it was pretty sparse what he said. I, I think everyone is now pointing to tracks too and and certainly you and I hope that it's going to be tracks too and third times guess, a charm, right? <laughs> yes, and I guess that's the perfect lead into our discussion tonight, which is about the first tracks.
0: And of course, we're going to start with disc 4 of tracks just to make this to keep things really interesting of and obviously that's the um the disc that has all the stuff, the outtakes from uh, from from Human Touch and Lucky Town, as well as going more into into '95. But right now we're gonna, since we've been talking about the '92 albums, let's let's talk about those outtakes.
1: Yeah, and I listened to tracks disc four yesterday straight through, and uh, it must have been the first time in fifteen years or so, and. Really, it surprised me because there are a couple of cuts on here that I don't think I ever gave enough credit to. Now we'll we'll get to that in the body of the show, but there's some really good material here, and it really does again point to his decision-making process in the early '90s. Because I, I would have to say he left off some songs that should have been on Human Touch for sure.
0: Yeah, and he he acknowledged that in in one of the interviews in '98. About how some of the stuff on tracks is better than the stuff that was on on the '92 album, or at least the the Human Touch album. One way I look at it, at least on on disc two, three, and four, is that the first X number of songs constitute what would have been an additional disc or or another album from those sessions. You can you can definitely see an album leaving starting off with Leaving Train, and ending with Going Cali. Now I would. You know, I would replace one or two songs in there with uh, with 30 Days Out and Trouble River, but I think as an album, that works pretty well.
1: Because it doesn't have Human Touch in particular, I, I still favor, I think, the album that was released. But, and as we get started here with Leave and Train, this is a better song than than several songs on the Human Touch album, including the song that it most closely is associated with, The Long Goodbye.
0: Well, well first off... I, I'm not saying this should have been released instead of human touch. I'm saying that it could wor- it works on his album as an album in and of itself.
1: I would agree with that.
0: And and that is really it constitutes like a disc two of human touch.
1: I don't know if anyone wants that, but
0: well that's that's what it is, and it and it and it works. I think it works very well as that.
1: It it is cohesive in a way I think that perhaps the human touch record was not, but why don't we discuss the individual tracks? What did what did you think about Leave and Train?
0: I have to agree with you. I think it's it's better than, uh, than some of the stuff on, on Human Touch. I mean, Gloria's Eyes, even though I praise the synth in the Boston 92 release, I, you know, it it could definitely replace that. It could replace All or Nothing. It could even, even The Long Goodbye, which is actually my favorite of those three.
1: Yeah, I, the thing about Leave and Train to me is that it it really is a relationship song, whereas I, I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, The Long Goodbye really does seem to be much more about his goodbye. And in a way that also ties it to another song that we're going to discuss later in the show, which is going Cali, but the overriding theme here, I think is still about his departure. Would you agree with that?
0: Mm, that's interesting. I had not looked at it that way. I was looking at it that he was talking to a romantic partner here.
1: I definitely get that.
0: But and what I found interesting is that between leaving and train and seven angels, the man or the narrator is being critical of his partner. And that's, and you don't see a lot of that on the human touch album on that album. It's more like he's the one that's done. That's done the screwing up.
1: Oh, and it's good that you point that out because that's another thing that struck me for all the talk that Bruce has said over the years, people didn't like my happy albums. There's plenty of material here on this disc tracks four that is not happy and no (laughs) far from it. I mean, when we get to gave it a name and and stuff like that, what is interesting about it is that he did have the songs that wouldn't have been, you know, these traditional happy songs and, and he chose to leave them off. And maybe he did that intentionally because he wanted to present that his life was changing and, these things were happening. Obviously, we know he got married, he had children and and everything that followed from that. But there are some strong songs here.
0: Absolutely. I agree 100%. And Human Touch could have been a much better album, just to put it bluntly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you talk about replacement. And to me, Seven Angels is like a propulsive rocker And then you compare it to something like Gloria's Eyes, which I know when we talked about it a few weeks ago, I put it, I refer to it as generic rocker. Seven Angels has a much more interesting feel to it in every way. The lyrics, uh, certainly musically. uh, I wonder why he left it off.
0: Again, I think my only thought on that is that he was being critical of the person or his romantic partner that he was talking to. Especially the last line, seventh angel says you're a liar. Um, but other than that, I can't. I can't think of a reason. It's it, it rocks. <laughs> it really rocks. And um, when he played it in Mohegan uh, in 2014, he let you know he let Gary take center stage, and the bass is very prominent on on yeah.
1: this song. And, and Tommy Sims would have been a uh, would have done a good job on that as well. Oh, I yeah, think, On would've. the 92 93 tour, I mean, Tommy Sims is an excellent bassist.
0: And I, see, I, I saw, I envisioned Seven Angels as being, as easily replacing Gloria's Eyes in the live show in 92, and it probably would have been a slightly better show, but it's because it has the same kind of driving Oh, it would have
1: been a much better second set opener than Gloria's Eyes, there's no question about it.
0: Okay, well.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I don't think anyone, I I wonder if, well, if anyone would argue with that, let us know on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um but then i it had the same the same the same feel of the song at the end where it kind of breaks down into just drums and to me that parallel is just is just too big
1: the parallel to glorious us yes i really like the storytelling in this song and and the way he goes through the seven angels and of course the hook in the song musically it, it's pretty unique for him especially because of the way the bass is driving the song now we know there's also uh, a host of songs that were written on the bass that we're going to discuss here from Tracks disc four. but still for a rocker I, I, it is a most unusual sound for Bruce.
0: Yeah, it is it's very very different. Uh, I mean he's I don't think I mean we t- we, we're just talking about the bass right now but in, I also feel he hasn't really let loose with guitar like this or at least have a had a guitar driven song like this um you know, for for a while or maybe even ever.
1: Oh, I don't I, know. I mean we'd have I to wrong go through on that
0: that.
1: Uh, We'd have to go through that. I don't know if I'm prepared to declare that. Let me think about it a minute.
0: I mean a lot of a lot of the songs in powerful songs from, from uh from the classic era is very much drums and, and piano. It's Max and Roy and then like and then it's almost like Bruce and Steve and Nils' guitars are kind of filling in there. And it's not really the drive of the song. All right. I'll,
1: I'll buy that. Yeah. Okay. I would say, I would say that. I mean, there, as I, as I said, when we started the discussion, it it's, it, there's something propulsive about it. It would have been a, a, an interesting addition to the live show, obviously having been listening to Boston 92, which as we discussed in the last episode is very, very solid, but you think of the second set opening with this track instead of Gloria's eyes, the show is better. I, yeah. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh,
0: yes, that is got to agree. It's, it, it would have been an upgrade.
1: Now, the next song, uh, another song that certainly wouldn't qualify as Happy, it gave it a name. Now, this song has an interesting history because apparently they couldn't find it when they were looking to do tracks. So Bruce re-recorded it in 1998. To me, this song has overtones of two faces as well as the Big Muddy. What do you think?
0: Well, it's interesting you you mentioned the Big Muddy because... Well, they remember- are a line. Well, yes, they they talk about the Paris Trout line, but what I was thinking was, remember how I was was somewhat critical of Bruce talking about morality? Um, You know, not everybody is afforded morality, and I thought, well, gee, Bruce, you cheat on your wife—that's not, you know, you're not. That's not exactly life and death there. But I think between gave it a name and when the lights go out, you actually have more of an argument for that kind of moral ambiguity.
1: Oh, I totally agree. And you get in these songs here, he is working out some stuff that had taken place that didn't wind up on the records. Now, again, it's it's an interesting choice on his part. We should probably talk a little about what might have provoked that because he did have what I think are fairly high quality songs here. And maybe he didn't want to go there. Were these songs too dark for him? And at that moment in his life with a new wife and new children, he decided, OK, that's not what I'm putting out into the world now.
0: I think we also need to point out that, that Gave It A Name was actually part of the bass driven songs, along with Over The Rise, Lights Go Out and Lose Change and Go and Callie, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I would have I mean, you know, obviously we would have loved to have heard the original gave it a name in that kind of bass ar- arrangement. And it still would have, it would have been, that would have been a very dark album right there. Between it gave, have. gave it a name, lights go out, loose change. That's, that's dark.
1: Yeah, I wonder, is there any evidence that he ever thought about grouping these songs together? Uh, as we know, he was being very prolific in this period, 92, 93, 94, 95. We've talked about all the various projects, w- but, uh, i don't believe these were included in any of those projects do we have any knowledge on that
0: well he did mention about having this group of, of the bass of the bass songs that could have been an album it could have been a genre album so it wasn't something that he wanted to to really go forth we talked about this i think in the human touch episode right mm-hmm. where where he a whole album of that kind of stuff of that kind of bass driven base focus material would not have been very conducive to going out on the road which is right i do
1: remember that now yeah
0: right and so the you know it sounds like he had at least half an album of of that stuff done i mean between gave it a name uh i mean the other four or five so it could have worked and it would have been different it would have been much different than what he what he had been doing with e street so it would have been a departure but i don't think it would have allowed him to do what he really wanted to do on the road
1: now that we're talking about it, it's surprising that none of these songs ever showed up on, say, the Devils and Dust tour.
0: Uh, well, somebody may have given him a request on the back of a business card at one point, but for, for what song? For, for loose change, but was that you? Yeah, but oh. obviously it didn't go very far, and it, that would have been something, that would have been that would have given that tour, or at least that kind of a wild card, a much darker field than most of the most of that kind of stuff out of the out of left field that he was playing uh, in 2005.
1: Now, ironically, I think the next song, which is Sad Eyes, that if I recall, that was played once on the Devils and Dust tour, right?
0: <laughs> yes, it was in Atlanta.
1: Should have been played more.
0: Uh, well, we play we say that about every song, but, <laughs> but yes, it should have been played more at some
1: point <laughs> as we touched in the human touch episode sad eyes is a quality song and and had it been written perhaps at another point of in his career earlier could have very well been a hit and and other artists have uh, w- i have to go back and look who's covered sad eyes there's been a a, a number of sad eye covers correct
0: yes i was going to say that my my favorite springsteen cover or cover of a springsteen song is sad eyes by enrique enrique iglesias I uh, thought his his pop version that came out around 2000 was just phenomenal. I, I I mean, I love pulling that pulling that one up every so often and just getting into it.
1: This is another uh, very I don't know if I should use the word sweet, because, again, there's trouble beneath the surface here. Always. But it's 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 beautifully sung. And I, this was a song that was really underappreciated and, and maybe because it was buried in a release as big as tracks. And uh, of course, on disc two and disc three, there were songs that fans had been waiting for for decades. So uh, something like this is not going to get the same level of attention when people are listening to Restless Nights released officially for the first (laughs) time, I don't think. But this one really, and I know we say it a lot, but this one not only should have gotten more attention, I think, from the fans, it should get more attention from the performer.
0: Well, the, the problem there is that it's not, there's no E Street sound. It's more of a pop sound. And
1: that's what makes know, it interesting.
0: Right, right, It's what makes it interesting, but it also make it very difficult for the E Street band to play at this point.
1: Oh, I think the E Street band can play this. I, I would like to hear them try. It probably won't happen.
0: Well, well, yeah, I would love to see them try all this. I mean, if they came out and said we're doing tracks this for tonight, I'm going nuts, you know. Well, that uh, would
1: be, that would be <laughs> what's got a less of a chance rising to our archives or that.
0: Yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> uh, but the th- thing about Sad Eyes is that you're right. It would have been a hit. It, it, had it been released in 1991 and like in the summer, it would have been a huge hit. And. One thing I found interesting about the arrangement is that it's basically a slowed down version of uh, Man's Job.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I think it does have a similar feel, but just in a in a slower pace.
0: Yeah, and it's very poppy. That's what, I mean, that's what it comes down to. And that's not something he's really done a lot of. And you know, maybe that's one of the reasons it really works here.
1: I really like it. I've always liked it. I don't know. I mean,
0: (laughs) a hundred percent, man.
1: Look, he could never play all the songs we want him to play. We get that, but a quality song like this, other performers, this would be a standout. But look, the guy's got five hundred songs, and a lot (laughs) of them are standouts. So, sad eyes. Unfortunately, it is what it is.
0: All right. So, which which song on Human Touch does this one replace?
1: That's a tough one. I mean, I certainly, now that I've listened to Tracks Disc 4 again, I certainly would have replaced The Long Goodbye with Leave and Train. As we discussed, I would have left, left off Gloria's Eyes in favor of Seven Angels. I don't know. I mean, it, it, in a way, would Sad Eyes, if it had been paired right before or after with Every Wish, is that too much?
0: I. Uh- that's a good question. I was thinking Soul Driver myself.
1: Well, I I was just talking about in terms of placement where I could see it coming. Yeah, and Soul me too. Soul Driver. I I think Soul Driver, as we discussed, is an excellent song and a very very poor arrangement on the record. I wouldn't have wanted to pull it off only because we know it went on to be played in its uh, darker arrangement on the tour and 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 i think that was a worthy addition every night i don't know what i would have left off for sad eyes i I, there's uh, really in a way even though i like cross my heart it does seem to fit in that space
0: Mm -hmm. i can see that i can definitely see that that works
1: so i'll go with that one
0: all right okay i'm as i said i'm thinking soul driver (laughs) but just like i think it'd be a great would have been a great track too on the on on human touch
1: the next song, which is "My Lover Man," this is an interesting one. I, I listening to it, and this one always evokes a lot of conversation, just because he obviously is singing from a woman's perspective, which he has not done very often.
0: I think it's only one of two times he's ever done it, right? Yeah. Well, the other one being "Car Wash."
1: Yeah. Now, this one, when I was listening to it, though, I really wonder if this was not written for Patty, because. I tried placing her voice singing the song, and and to me it would work perfectly. So maybe that was what he was thinking when he wrote it, and in a way that would have then, it, it would create something interesting because she would be singing a song that he wrote, which really then, <laughs> if she were singing it, I guess would make it about his foibles.
0: That's true. That's a good point. And the way I looked at it when I was listening to it now was that, Maybe it was a songwriting exercise. Maybe somebody said. Maybe his therapist said, "Hey Bruce, why don't you write a song from the point of view of some of the women you've you've dated over the years or been married
1: to?" Oh, that's an interesting one.
0: And you know what they would be thinking when you pull pull the girl, your stunts? Well, you
1: know? yeah. Now that you're saying that, and I read the first two lines, you treated me hard and made my heart ache. I know you're only human, and men they make mistakes. Uh, that that's really interesting what you're saying. And, and if you think of it then, and that guy's, could he be writing it about almost from Julianne's perspective?
0: Possibly. I was thinking of any of the women he was involved with basically for those, you know, 30 years before he met Patty. When
1: he had the same relationship over and over again.
0: (laughs) That's it. You got my reference. Very good. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I did get it. We're in sync here, Flynn.
0: All right. All right. Um, and of course, the fact that it just sounds like brilliant disguise doesn't really help it that much either.
1: Yeah, this is not one of my personal favorites, even from this disc. It's, if it was a songwriting exercise, I get it. As a song, I don't think it's anything great.
0: No, yeah, it's, it's this one's kind of generic in, in a way, especially after you remove the, the songwriting perspective out.
1: The next song is another one of the bass songs, and that's uh, Over the Rise. What do you think of this one?
0: You know, I'm still having trouble figuring this one
1: out. (laughs) Yeah, me too. This is, again, not one of my favorites. And there are a couple of tracks on here that really did surprise me with their power. One of them is coming up. But this one is just,
0: it's sort of weird. Yeah, there's a lot of dark imagery. And it has, and definitely has a very dark feel to it. Uh, But I can't exactly tell where he's going with it. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting, but I can't really wrap my head all the way around it just yet.
1: Again not a happy song at the very end of the song he's searching the pillow next to him for the tears that they cried the the couple <laughs> in the song
0: yeah it's very very dark in there there's no, no happiness here and it's 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 interesting i i like the the opening lines about the about to walk on the levee and, and see the gypsy man i like i just like that imagery a lot
1: yeah it it the gypsy man imagery is pretty cool uh, uh, in the next verse they're standing at a wishing well or wishes like dreams, baby into the water fell that that's cool. But I don't know that the song, as we're saying ever fully comes
0: together. No, I, I don't think it does. There are some elements that are cool. that I like about it, the darkness, so to speak about the lyrics and the, and the music, but it doesn't quite, it's almost like it's still, it's still a demo in process.
1: Yeah. It, this is one. It doesn't seem fully realized. And it, it's interesting that it winds up on tracks because we know there were some other songs, perhaps. Although I guess those would be for probably the relationship record that that didn't make tracks.
0: Well, I, it looks like he didn't consider anything from, or at least we don't know of anything that he considered for, for tracks from the relationship right. album.
1: This I was mean, it's said to be the alternate route to the albums he released. So I right. guess all of these songs would be at least tangentially related to the Human Touch Sessions.
0: Well, it was recorded in 1991, Yeah, early early 91, so it's definitely part of the Human Touch Sessions.
1: Well, I guess my distinction would be, because as you were saying, he recorded a bunch of songs on the bass that could have made up the heart of a record, and ultimately he didn't think that that was right for touring, even if they were all part of a larger sessions are they the same record? That I guess in his mind they were, and that's why these songs wound up on tracks.
0: Right. I mean, maybe he only got to the, to the five or six songs and said, yeah, this is kind of enough of that.
1: Along the same lines, and we're going to discuss this a little bit later when we get to the closing track, Brothers Under the Bridge, that of course was an outtake to Jode. There was a whole separate set of sessions at that time, the daytime sessions we've discussed, and he apparently did not take anything from those sessions, which comprised a different record for tracks. So that that sort of proves the same point.
0: Right. Well, that that was the frustrating thing about tracks at the time, is that they were all outtakes from known projects. There was nothing you know say from the 87 Nashville sessions or or as you know as the, or the 90 94 relationship album or the or the country swing album that I think is also known as the daytime album from from the Joe Joe era. So hopefully the next tracks too will focus on projects that that never made it out of the out of the gate.
1: Ah, fingers crossed, but <laughs> we won't go there right now. We'll we'll stick to tracks one.
0: Well, we've already we've already discussed tracks two today Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. What was it like
1: to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On press box Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small. And some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on press box access. The next track is when the lights go out. Now this is a particularly interesting track, especially the Genesis. We know was written on the bass. He then played it at the Crystic. I hadn't heard this song in a while, at least the studio version. And again, I, this one cried out to me. Like I, I would like to hear this re-recorded with the E Street band. I, I think it's there's some good songwriting in here. I don't know that the the bass driven element of this particular song works totally for me. How do you feel about it?
0: Well as usual I like I like these things. I like I like I like what he's what he released. But when you point out or when you point out that it could be re- recorded by the E Street band I feel it could be recorded in some kind of like paranoia arrangement. Like, yeah, that's similar exactly. It's a little too to, bouncy, right? So, you know, pull in something like state trooper from 84 or run through the jungle uh, in 81 something totally. that brings that like a real paranoia about when the lights go out, what happens?
1: This is one of those things. I don't think we know exactly when this was recorded within the sessions. And, so we don't know if it became before Soul Driver in Real World, but this song is afflicted with the same problem to me. It's it's just the the arrangement is is too bouncy for the lyrics. And and this is one of <laughs> this one is particularly dark. And I, I think what you're saying, like a run through the jungle sort of thing, would would be perfect.
0: It's interesting. I didn't th- I never found it bouncy. I There's I mean still- I hear I hear what you're saying, but that riff to me is is more.
1: It's not as bouncy as a Soul Driver,
0: right? It's more scary and foreboding than something really upbeat and pop like you know, like, like the Soul Driver tune, as you just said. So I never There's, I never thought that was the problem with
1: it. The tracks version never fully worked for me. I think that when you look at these lyrics and. And there is some really cool ambience here. Yeah, now you say you have a friend, you trust him with your life, you trust him with your money, you trust him with your kids, you'd even trust him with your wife, but yet apparently the friend is <laughs> not completely on the level uh, when the lights go down. So I, I agree with you fully that it, maybe bouncy is not the right word on this one, but it should have been more ominous.
0: Okay. All right. That works. I, th- I think he, he got almost... Almost there, but not, not all the way. And I think it also provides more evidence as to why a bass-driven album just would just would not have worked in and of itself at that point in time.
1: Yeah, I don't think it would have worked as an entire record either. However, there were individual songs, and one of them is the next track, which <laughs> is Lose Change. Uh, Lose Change, again, I hadn't heard in a while. What a powerful song this is. I mean, it's it just totally forgotten. Th- this song it knocked me out listening to it yesterday. I was, I was outside. It was a beautiful day, and I was going through these songs, and and loose change came on, and I was like, I just never appreciated this song enough.
0: Well, I I loved it from from the get go. I think the the feeling, the atmosphere, the ambiance that he captured with both, with the music, and then the lyrics. I'm talking about going to these bars and. She, you know, I knew she was trouble, but trouble sure was looking fine. He was really—I mean, he was describing himself, probably for the and to, to some extent about trying to break out of old habits and and start something new and just how difficult that was.
1: Thematically, doesn't it cover some of the same territory as the little things account, and uh, which is also about about a bar hookup? No. Well, but
0: to me loose change you ha- there are these loose hookups so so there are at least two right and okay. but and there's no there's no real connection other than old habits of just of just hooking up just to hook up and whereas in in, in the little things it's kind of he makes it cute he makes it funny this woman obviously has a thing for him and in, in the song and you know, it, it's supposed to be humorous at the end where she sticks her tongue in his mouth. And right, I don't hear any of that. And to me, the, it's the last verse of this song about, you know, sitting at the, uh, at, at the traffic light and goes from red to green and red and back again. And
1: love that so much.
0: Uh, it's so powerful. I mean, I can imagine him sitting in his car and at three o'clock in the morning at some deserted intersection, just trying to do stuff trying to find the strength or the will to make a big change. And I see it as being, you know, pretty much a very personal song.
1: Yeah. And he's telling it in the story. It's personal, but in the story, he wasn't really uh, Brian, Brian Hyatt points this out in his book. This was not the type of writing Bruce was really doing at the time. And, and this one sort of comes out of nowhere and, it, and it's so highly effective.
0: Very, very, I, I, I mean i I actually think back to it reminds me of the summer like between high school and college when I was you know trying to figure out what exactly what I wanted to do and all that and i, I it really hits home in that respect because I remember driving around you know late at night trying to figure out what to do
1: it's It's a song that really should have probably been elevated from its position here mm-hmm as far as we know, he's never thought about playing it. Now, we, we forgot to mention when we talked about Gave It A Name, we actually did hear him sound check at Mohegan, uh, Gave It A Name, which was really bizarre to suddenly be in the venue and hearing that sound check. But as far as we know, Loose Change has never been considered to, for performance, right?
0: No, no, I don't think so. I mean, looking at these songs, it looks to me, outside of part man, part, mon- part monkey, and back in, in the two more... Back in your arms and Brothers Under the Bridge is only like Leave and Train was, was sound checked a few times. Seven Angels was played in Mohegan.
1: Let, Leave and Train was also played with Grishaki at a
0: couple of those oh, shows. That's right, in 14, that's right. Okay, and then uh, and then Sad Eyes that one time in, uh, in Atlanta, but you know, lo, no loose change, no trouble in paradise, no when the lights go out since Christic. So this is a pretty much a, almost a forgotten disc in terms of uh, live performances.
1: Okay, well, let's get The Trouble in Paradise, which probably is best left forgotten, but
0: that's just,
1: <laughs> that's
0: just me. Well, well, this, well, my...
1: this one is not what I would call a high-quality Springsteen song, and and it's interesting that he put it on the tracks. I probably would have left it off. Maybe there's someone out there who likes it. How do you feel about it? It right, doesn't okay. work well,
0: for me. All right, well, it took a while, but it works for me. Okay, why? Um, well, because I kind of see it as an apology to Julianne. I see it when he's, I'm sorry, baby, I didn't see the signs, and he really gets into the blue-eyed soul thing at that point. You know, that's, that's one of his apologies to Julianne.
1: Uh, I see what you're saying, but I, I, I don't know what the right word would be in <laughs> terms of the lyrics. I'm, try, I'm trying to think now on the fly. Is it trite?
0: <laughs> well, when I think of this song is that Bruce when he was talking to Rolling Stone in 92 about what happened between Tunnel of Love and going to California he said he was right trying to write some stuff but it ended up being like Tunnel of Love but not as good and to me that is this song you know perfectly uh, described
1: that's fair enough i i don't know this one doesn't really work for me i mean the whole uh the the first verse you know i used to joke about it you know that they were going to have pantomimes on stage uh, <laughs> yes i remember that act acting out the uh, lyrics the uh, i don't know this one doesn't work for me but hey they're not all going to work for me that's just the way it is and that's and art is re- received differently by different people
0: right and it's and again i always want to hear something than hear about something and i think this was one of the songs that i heard about i guess i don't know through the Whispered grapevine or what? And I'm like, I, I want to hear that. I want to. I want to make my own. My own judge. Be my own judge of the song instead of being having the criticism or the praise, you know, filtered through other people.
1: Fair enough. And the next song, which we've already discussed as part of the Lucky Town episode, I know we don't have any daylight between us because Happy is. It, it, it's a beautiful song, and, uh-huh. and and as we said at the time, I mean, it's interesting because the guy singing about being happy, but he sounds w- would we say morose? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, uh, to me the only the best description is that he's content in this song. He's he's happy and content, and not he's not ecstatic. He's not shouting from the rooftops uh, like he described when uh, when his when his kids were born. But you know, there's a certain happiness and a certain contentness that he's managed to how am i trying what am i trying to say here he's finally f- found the truce with the uh with the, with the opposite sex
1: i can see that uh, and as we know happy was i believe the last song written for this cycle in fact it was written so late it was too late for lucky town right
0: i believe that's the case i believe because it was recorded in january of 92 and so it was just just
1: Right, that would have been very, very tight to get it on Lucky Town by by March.
0: Right, and well, but going back to what you were, you were saying, but corrected yourself, if you didn't know when it was recorded, it would be the perfect transition song between the two albums. Right, I mean b- between both musically and lyrically.
1: It w- yes, it would, especially the way the synth ends on Happy, and I, and I think as we mentioned in the lucky town episode the the to me the song the musically it ends on a happier note however morose he sounds and singing some of the lyrics
0: <laughs> that's a good point it does it does it does, well, it
1: does on, sort of it, soar it's it sort of soars there at the end
0: yeah. yeah musically it just you're right he you feel his his happiness <laughs> even if you didn't feel it through the first four minutes of the song you definitely feel it in the last 30 or so seconds
1: yeah, and and that of course leads into Part Man, Part <laughs> Monkey, another one of my personal favorites, Flynn, as you're aware of. Oh
0: uh, yes. Well, as I as I said, I think if you replace Part Man, Part Monkey here with Thirty Days Out, you that got, would work for me. There, that's that, there's your twelve song twelve song album right there.
1: Well, Part Man, Part Monkey, which it was interesting on the Tunnel Tour, and then of course it was a how many different places was it a b-side in 92
0: yeah and it just wasn't 92 it it got extended into 93 and 94 and you know maybe even 95 i think i i seem to remember it's on the same cd single as uh, secret garden um i think that's one of the reasons that it's so you know it's not exactly loved by the hardcore fans is that it just it kept coming out on all these you know, part man, part monkey on the CD single could have been Sad Eyes. It could have been Seven Angels, but it didn't yeah. have to be part man, part monkey like it, ten times. It,
1: let's be honest. It's not a great song. Now, <laughs> I will say he sort of moved me more with it in 2005 on the Devils and Dust tour with the intro. And, and I thought that was a cool arrangement. This arrangement here with the session musicians that he used to record Human Touch, uh, it. it it doesn't really work for me. I mean, <laughs> it's just—I mean, I'm just being. <laughs> well, the, you, I'll
0: you, leave it at that. You're not the only person to feel that way, and I really liked it when I heard it as as the B side in, in '92. But you know, time time can wear down those kinds of opinions. Thirty days out, I still love.
1: Yeah, that's a good one, and and Trouble River is also another good one. And as we know, Trouble River was on 18 tracks, correct? Yes. Yeah, and 30 Days Out had already been released on, as a B-side. Now, I guess, so 30 Days Out wasn't on tracks. Nope. Was it on 18 tracks? Nope. So there's part of the problem. Like on tracks here, he plops on part man, part monkey, and 30 Days Out, which was also a B-side to the 92 records, w- was not on tracks, and, and that was a song that probably should have been.
0: Right. I mean, that to me, 30 Days Out just freaking rocks.
1: Yeah, that's um, actually that now that we're talking about it and, and uh, <laughs> what year the track came out in 98. <laughs> so it's not like we've talked about this too much in recent years. But, yeah, why did he leave 30 days out off of tracks? A lot of the other B sides are here.
0: I have no idea. I think it, is that the only B side that's not on here? Is it? Uh, well, hold on here. Well, I guess Big to... Payback wasn't on here.
1: No, it wasn't. Um, no.
0: B True was on there. Held Up isn't on here.
1: Yeah, there were. It wasn't all of them. I guess he felt that that's some of them, maybe he picked part man, part monkey because he felt that it fit in better than than 30 days out. I don't know. But uh, thankfully, <laughs> part man, part monkey has not resurfaced any time lately.
0: Uh, let me take it. Got played in 2008 once with, was with, that, with the Eastery band. What was the impetus for that? Uh, he was in Pennsylvania. I think it was the Hershey show in August. Right, right, 2008, and I think that was when there was some some controversy going on about the uh, teaching evolution or teaching uh, creationism. Well,
1: it's certainly fertile territory again because you know there's a lot of well, I don't want to, I'm not going to classify it. But let's just say it was a lot of fertile territory right, <laughs> right. now for that kind of thing.
0: Yes, yes, but let's uh, instead of going political, let's let's no, let's political. go Cali. <laughs>
1: yeah. Now this is. Is this the most autobiographical song he's ever written? Going Cali?
0: It must be. I can't think of another one. Uh Cautious Man, I don't I don't think is as auto as much about him as as this one. This one is, I mean, like freaking line for line, everything happened apparently.
1: I, this <laughs> is yeah. To the the second verse packed them next to the faith that he had lost in himself, said his goodbyes. And when the dirty work was done, he turned his wheels into the fading sun. It, it sounds like he really was feeling beaten up at the time. And uh, I, I, I looked over Brian's book as I generally do before we do these episodes. And you know, he mentions how this song was recorded in January of 91. And it, this is really sort of a bridge to lucky town because i think most of human touch was already done at this point and you you do get it i mean like it, it, you hear a lot of the themes now they're happier on lucky town and uh, w- when we when we discuss the lucky town record i even was talking about how it seemed to me like almost in order that was telling the story of what was happening in his life with book of dreams and living proof and all that stuff this would have fit in there
0: mm-hmm lyrically yeah it fits in perfectly but musically it's one of the it's another one of the bass driven songs yes and what's interesting to me is that of all the bass driven songs the only one he included on one of the albums at the time uh human touch was 57 channels and i'm going to go ahead and say it that he picked the worst bass driven song to release on the on the album i think all of these other uh, songs just blow 57 channels out of the water
1: well, certainly something like Loose Change or this track would have been a better choice, I think, than 57 Channels. Uh, as we know, they I think they saw 57 Channels sort of in a pop mode, regardless of whether it was on the bass or not. Uh, as we remarked in the, in that episode, I, I never really understood how that was the, the second single, but
0: I didn't either. And and, and I think there was some uh, guilt by association with 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 the songs on on on. Tracks this for. I mean, people said, "Yeah, go and Cali." Well, I heard it the first time at 57 channels. I don't need to hear it again. And but this is ten times, hundred times a better song.
1: Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to revisit these things. And and I and I've said this before on our show, just because obviously I listen to stuff a little bit differently when we're going to sit here and talk about it for an hour. I haven't really considered any of these themes in a while. And you, you do wonder, like, maybe, again, it was just this one was just too personal for him. I mean, it, it laid it out there in such a way maybe he just decided, no, nah, I'm not going to do this right now. Because also, if he had put it out, then it probably would have been played live. It, it It's interesting that on the move to California song that resulted, I, I think the long goodbye was the most generic.
0: Yes, Yes, I mean, that was generic rocker number three, right? Yes. <laughs> and whereas this one would have would have had a whole different feel to the Human Touch album. Yes. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite there um, with the Human Touch album. He wasn't quite at that point where all the voices in his head quieted down. And that didn't happen until Lucky Town.
1: Now, there are two final tracks on this disc and they are not from the 92-93 sessions. Back in Your Arms, which is the next song, was for the, well, we believe it's for the relationship record, right?
0: Yes, that's what that's what we suspect. I don't think we have any concrete confirmation on that just yet.
1: But it really is here because it's an alternative to The Greatest Hit Sessions, which is where this version was recorded. Right. This is a song I love. And, and as we know, in the last 25 years or so, of the showstoppers he's written, This is really one of the biggest. When he plays this live... Uh, it, it It is the definition of showstopper. Uh, if you look at uh, many of the versions that have been performed, and I know you like to bring up the Cleveland 2009 <laughs> version, which which really was, uh, he even as we st- have joked before, he even said at the end, thank you very much. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll Good night, see everybody. Um, yeah, Good night, everybody. everybody. And, so, and
0: then Charlie plays that cheesy organ riff.
1: Yeah, they, they did not nail it here. Now, we, of course, saw the... Recording sessions of this because it was in Blood Brothers, the documentary where it was we saw the band doing it. And it was a very sparse arrangement. And, and that was our all, all our first experience with the song. And everyone went, oh, my God, this song is incredible. And then when it came out on tracks, they had finished it and there were overdubs and and the the song still didn't feel fully realized to me and, and it doesn't in the studio certainly nothing like it, it does live
0: no I think the well I think the word you're looking for is or the, ex- the phrase is too polished
1: yes that could be
0: it I think it when when they showed it on the on the documentary it was pretty I don't want to say rough but it was, it was you could say it was a rough mix of it and Bruce's vocals were had definitely had more of a almost of a live feel to them. Yes. And then in here, it's, uh, here. they basically went in and kind of polished all the, all the hard edges around it. And unfortunately, in, some, in many cases, those hard edges are what gave the song more of its soul.
1: Yeah. And, and this song has one of the quintessential Clarence solos. I know we were talking earlier in the show. Unfortunately, it's, it's been 10 years since he passed. And you, you just listen to the power of what he did here. And mm-hmm. it, it's just beautiful.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. He, uh, such a, well, I think it's, you could almost say it shows off, you know, him and Danny. I mean, Danny's solo is. That's true that's too. One, that's Yeah. You shouldn't tra- forget Danny. Right. That's one of his trademark solos as far as I'm concerned. And, yeah. you know, one, th- one thing I got to wonder is this easily could have been a hit in the same vein as secret garden.
1: Well, this is, I think about her song in secret garden. I know when Caroline was on the last episode, I talked about how powerful secret garden was for me as used in Jerry Maguire. And, and, and I think that is 100% true, but I think just as a song back in your arms is a much more passionate, romantic, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, just powerful take on, on what the singer is singing about that. He has lost this girl and all he wants to do is, is literally feel her back in his arms.
0: Right. And I feel you put this in a movie a popular rom-com you know in the same vein as Jerry Maguire and this is this is a top five hit or, i mean lisa could have been in the 90s i don't think now it, it would work you know
1: you, you know what i'm thinking about now if back in your arms is almost so good it's almost too on the nose for a movie in in a way like i it, it would be like it, it when you're when you're looking for music and we were talking about this with caroline it, you wanted to complement the film back in your arms is such a significant song mm-hmm it's almost like it would become the film. And you don't want that from your music. I mean, the brilliance of Secret Garden in Jerry Maguire is how it, it comes in. They don't even use that much of it in a way, at least lyrically. And it, it just works because of the power of Danny's organ and and the sax. I, it, it, it might overpower uh, the images that it was attached to. I don't know. I mean, obviously, we'd have to see w- what it was but to me back in your arms is is a more significant song than secret garden
0: oh i, I agree 100 um i mean i'm i would i would have prefer, preferred this one on greatest hits rather than secret garden and you know i never thought about it that way in terms of the music overpowering some a film but that's a good that's a good point and i but i still think it would have been a huge hit at, you know part of some some rom com in the you know in the mid to late '90s.
1: The, the thing about it is, Secret Garden I think is a little bit more subtle, whereas Back in Your Arms <laughs> it really wears the heart on the sleeve. That's and true. The way he wails, I just want to be back in your arms. I you know again, if you put that over images of a couple, it's almost like well, <laughs> you <laughs> know. <laughs> well- it, it, it's too much in a way, in my mind. But again, I'd have to see the circumstance.
0: I mean, could it go over credits?
1: Oh, certainly, I think it could. But also, you'd have to think of the movie, where would it end with the where the song fits where the guy is screaming, he wants her back in her arms. Most movies have probably concluded with the couple back together. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Again, we're, we're getting off track.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. But still, we agree it's one of his greatest love songs. I think it's his greatest love song.
1: Uh, just and, incredibly shocking that it winds up buried on tracks disc four. And uh, I know we say this a lot, but this is a song. It, it, this, back in your arms is, if for any other artist would be played every night. I mean, that's not <laughs> even a debate. Uh, any other artist would be falling all over themselves if they had this song.
0: Yeah. And then Bruce plays it, you know, what, five times on the reunion tour and how many times since, like. You know, with at least with the Eastry band, like what five, four. The, uh, the every thing time. that's
1: always fascinated me about that is he clearly knows. I mean, mm-hmm. the minute the song starts, he hears the crowd reaction. The thing about "Back in Your Arms" is, as an outtake, it gets such at uh, the Cleveland being the best example. It gets such an amazing reaction from the crowd, whether they know the song or not. I mean, this is pure magic when it's happening.
0: Yeah, his intros about if you know. That's a do- that's the door slamming on your face after after you've done something really really bad. Uh, he he really builds it up perfectly, and that's unfortunately I'm sure that's from experience, personal experience. But that intro really, I mean it 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 resonates very strongly with with a lot of people, if not all people.
1: Oh yeah, it's just what a great song. it
0: <laughs> ten, I, minutes, 10 yeah. minutes about one song here. Yeah.
1: Okay, so let's move on to Brothers Under the Bridge, and, and we'll finish up. This, of course, is a song that is related to the Jode record and was featured prominently on that tour. It, it, this is a high-quality track.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, to me, it, it completes the his Vietnam trilogy in, in, in some fashion, uh, going from Shut Out the Light, that covers the Vietnam vet when he first comes home, uh, Born in the USA, you know, 10 years later what exactly he's been he's been doing and now another 10 years and the guy is living in the in the foothills of in california so it just tells the whole story
1: yes it does and and this is a particularly sad tale his daughter is looking for him and the protagonist is saying to her come veterans day i sat in the stands of my dress blues i held your mother's hand when they passed with the red white and blue what a minute you're right there and something slips this is Uh, a song about someone who is slipping away from society, as as you noted, living in the hills of Los Angeles. And and in many ways, even though, of course, this song is many years before, this sort of storytelling and caricature, if not necessarily the musical flavor, would seem to fit on Western stars to me. Do you agree with that?
0: Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, From the storytelling perspective and and just the, the mental attitude and the mental place that the protagonist is in it. That's definitely because a lot of guys on Western stars are, are slipping away and this guy, he, he's on his way.
1: Now refresh my memory. Was this song played? It was played once on the reunion tour, right? In Barcelona.
0: Yes. Opening No, the second night, April 11th, 1999.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That was the one night. uh, Speaking of your trilogy thought that was the one night where he did the hybrid Partial acoustic into full band, Born in the USA.
0: Yeah, and if memory serves, he did the um, the he did USA prior to Brothers, and I I think if he had reversed that, if he had played what he did was he played Born in the USA first first bit acoustic, then the full band, and then he went to Brothers, and then he went into Light a Day. I always felt that that was kind of a clunky sequencing, if just from the pacing perspective. And so, if he had done Brothers first, then segued into the Born USA acoustic, and then the full band to really to really get the place going, and then you slam into Light of Day, I think that would have worked would have worked much better. See, I always
1: felt at that point he was trying to protect the song, and that's why it was partial acoustic, full band, and then followed by the Brothers Under the Bridge which sort of gave it, uh, much like he did in 2014 in the United States with The Wall, where The Wall was played into Born in the USA, he was really giving it in a context where it would be very hard to misunderstand the meaning of Born in the USA.
0: Right, but you just said The Wall into Born in the USA. That's true. Uh, If he had played Brothers into Born in the USA, I think it would have been... I think the pacing at least would have been much better, much sharper.
1: Yeah, well it was a very weird sequence to be sure and it was never repeated again.
0: <laughs> no, well in fact that was the only full band performance of USA on that tour and the only performance of Brothers on the Bridges with the East Street band or Br- Bridge singular.
1: Right, uh, we got to keep the song straight.
0: <laughs> uh and so what? I mean he did it in 2014, right? So yes. it's uh yeah, both of them got a long, long rest after that one outing. The
1: quality of the songwriting here, and it's, uh, needless to say, in the entire Vietnam trilogy, Shut Out the Light and Born in the USA, Born in the USA in particular, one of his best-written songs, in my opinion, it just, this is really... Brilliant stuff. And it, I don't think they've ever all been played together, except maybe there was one night in San Jose in 1996 on the Joe tour. I actually helped bring that about because uh, I requested shut out the light. I gave Landau a note before the show, and it, it was, I think, the only night where he played shut out the light, born in the USA and Brothers Under the Bridge all in a row. But it it was just really, really cool to see those songs together. And I guess we'll have to go back and look. Do do you recall, were the the three ever
0: played together anywhere else? I don't think so. I think out of that that trio, the Shut Out the Light will be the biggest wild card. And that hasn't been played. I don't think it's been played since the Joe tour. (laughs) So, but whereas obviously USA and Brothers Under the Bridge have been.
1: Yes, they have. And, uh. You know, again, just a, a beautiful song and, and a, a really fitting conclusion, I think, to tracks disc four. I don't know if there's any other outtakes from Joe. They certainly didn't appear on tracks. <laughs> we know there are the daytime sessions, as we mentioned earlier. That's really related to a different record, one that hasn't been released yet. And maybe we'll get a chance to hear that sometime soon,
0: hopefully someday. But let me quickly re- correct myself, Hal. Okay. Uh, shout, shout Out to Light was indeed done on the Devils and Dust tour. So. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> totally... Was
1: it on the pump organ? Yes. Okay. I do remember that now. Yes.
0: So, so yeah, I think the, the daytime and the, and the nighttime album done in the summer of 95 are definitely different projects.
1: So, and that's about it for this show. We're going to wrap it up. Now, we do want to tell everyone about the next show because we're very excited about it. We're going to have the four men who are responsible over the 40 year history of Backstreet's magazine for running the show there. What what are their titles, Flynn? Were they editor in chief? Uh, I I don't want to get it wrong.
0: (laughs) I think it was basically managing editor. It may not have been uh, they may not have concrete or firm titles. Everybody everybody did what what they what needed to be done. So uh, but I think managing editor is probably the best one. And founder, of course, and you go back to go back to Charles uh, Cross,
1: and and very fortunately we have so together we have Charles Cross, Eric Flanagan, John Pont, Chris Phillips, all going to be on the show with us. Or actually, it's going to be two episodes. The two will comprise our season finale. And we recorded this about a week ago now. We had a great time. The four have never spoken anywhere together publicly. And there's just, there's a lot of great information that we think people are going to enjoy hearing about the history of the magazine, the relationship between the magazine and the organization, the fans, E Street Nation. I'm looking forward to hearing the final product
0: yeah we haven't finished uh putting it all together yet but uh it was a lot of fun and i learned a lot of a lot of stuff and i, I think everyone else are are, are really going to enjoy it yeah
1: it was a real treat for us it really was so be on the lookout for that i believe the first part is going to be out july 6th and the second part will likely be out july 15th so uh put it in your
0: calendars <laughs> Well, just download the show when you, as you normally do when it comes out, and you'll that, be fine. That is true. The good thing about podcasts is they just
1: sort of show up there automatically.
0: <laughs> that is a cool thing about subscribing to podcasts, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So, and on that note, we're going to do our usual spiel here at the end of the show. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and soon to be a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network if you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at MBTB Podcast, and our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com.
0: So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Phil McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.